0: Oh, yeah.
1: Welcome to Episode 5 of One More Time. I'm Sean Smith, the executive producer and host. If you couldn't tell from the music, this is our Valentine's Day release. It is titled Band Love. Before we launch into the episode, I want to ask you to take a second and give us a rating on iTunes. It will really help this podcast reach more people. And also, please consider leaving us a comment on our website. We want to hear from you. On this episode, we explore how the band world affects relationships and often brings people together. I will freely admit that my first, second, and third, and, well, most of my significant others came from band, or at least from the music world, I will also freely admit that it is now weird to date a non-musician, but people do it, so I'm told. The closeness of band families often leads to amorous encounters. When you shove a bunch of teenagers on a bus for several hours, how could it not? So there's not a person listening to this who can't recall their own, or at least others who have developed band relationships. There's nothing quite like the budding love that occurs at the beginning of a marching season that quickly falls away like autumn leaves on a tree. I experienced those as a student, and then watched them as a director. I can think of no more fitting a way to spend our February episode than talking about all that love. The idea of love will be woven throughout every segment and intro as much as possible. Speaking of band bringing people together, I'm joined on this episode by Daniel Dresser and Stephen Cohen. Hi guys. Hey Sean. Hey. Since we are sharing, have you two had any band relationships? How about you, Stephen? Well, you know, once you're in a college
2: marching band for three years, so many of those trips, just spending every day together, uh, it just That's happens.
1: enough. Let's move on.
3: How about you, Daniel? Well, you know, I had my first serious girlfriend, and we actually both played clarinet. Um, the thing is, though, we weren't exactly meant for each other, and it caused a lot of problems. That doesn't always happen, though, in band relationships.
1: Because you both play clarinet.
3: Yep, I don't recommend that.
1: No, no, never, never
3: date a clarinet player. We should probably get on with the episode. Our first segment is From the Archives with Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archives and Center for American Music. Scott's going to talk about some Sousa love.
4: Suses our flirtations, written in 1880. Um, it's a society comedy, um, and basically is based on the um, the plot of James Bird Wilson about the multiple flirtations of many picnickers out for a Sunday afternoon party. In some respects, kind of. Illustrates some of Sousa's early encounters um, with young ladies and young love. 1873 is an important year for several different reasons. Um, 1873, he publishes his first um, March. It's called The Review. It was dedicated to Colonel William G. Moore. He would have been about 19, he still would have been a member, an apprentice in the Marine Band. One young lady, um, who Sousa had a, a an infatuation, as took some interest in it and spoke highly of it. And in a moment of just careless disregard for the secret that he loved her, he asked her if she would go to the weekend ball, and she said yes. That evening, he had basically, um, for the rest of the week, practiced how he would tell her how much he loved her. Now, Mr. Souza made sure that he would have the first dance since he was her escort. And when the first grand march started, they came into the ball and they danced. And at the time when the dance came to an end and everybody gathered to eat dinner he came up to her and said, I believe I have the pleasure of this opportunity to spend time with you at the intermission. And she politely said, I'm sorry, John, but I have changed my mind and I've decided to remain in the company of my dear friend. 1873, a fairly significant point in time. But thankfully for that young lady who turned him down, his career takes off in different directions. About 1875, okay, he's still in Washington working, he falls in love with another young lady. I suspect as with all young love, a broken heart today is quickly repaired when a new love becomes the focus of your life. He falls in love with a young lady called Emma May Swallow. On October 3rd, 1877, she marries J.P. Bartlett. And he sees the Washington article of their wedding. At which point, love lost. Love will regain eventually. Of course, he continues to... um, perform in Philadelphia. His music publishing company he's working for is going to publish Pinafore. And Sousa is asked would he be willing to conduct a bunch of society folks in a performance of his Pinafore. And Sousa agrees. And the next night he writes I come into the room and meet the finest assembly of voices and beauties that I have ever met. And so being young, I rehearsed them hard and they continued to make great music. So he continues to perform them. And that, that group eventually becomes the, the Pinafore Company of Philadelphia, February 22nd of 1879 the principal soprano introduces him to her understudy who proved according to Mr. Souza, to be the loveliest girl that he had ever seen jeanie Bellis of Philadelphia she had a cloud of chestnut hair and a perfect complexion she was wearing a little gray poke bonnet and was charmingly dressed. I liked everything about her, her manner, her speech, her face, her voice. I suspect much more. After I had shaken hands with her, she laughingly stated, There are two birthdays today. I am celebrating Washington's. And before she could answer the second part, Susan interrupted and said, And who else? And she said, Mine. I am 16. Before the year ends, actually December 30th, he marries Jeannie. And they remain happily married for the rest of their lives. They had three children, John Philip Jr., Priscilla, and Helen. So as the fairy tale goes, they did live happily ever after.
1: For our two-minute rehearsal technique this week, we will hear from John Warda. John is in his final year at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music pursuing his doctorate in conducting. Prior to attending CCM, John was the director of bands at Wheaton North High School in Illinois for 10 years and was one of my directors at Naperville North High School for five years. John has been a wealth of information on rehearsing, teaching, and becoming a better musician and teacher for my entire career, and I think you will find his two minutes incredibly helpful.
5: Repertoire is the single most important aspect of any music classroom. It's the curriculum, it's the motivation, it's the discipline plan. Therefore, the decision of what repertoire to play when is vital for any music educator. When you pick one piece of music over another, you're saying this piece is the most important for my kids right now and no other pieces are as relevant. So you need to choose wisely. The kids will be the first who know. They will not admit it, but students love to be challenged. They want to improve, and they can discern bad rep from good, regardless of their age or experience level. They will always gravitate towards pieces that they inherently understand are great. So choose wisely. But what is great rep? In my opinion, great rep is artistic, imaginative and original, expressive, well-crafted, and takes chances. Great rep is not predictable, or from the contest list, or on the publisher's new work CD, or something that the kids will think is fun necessarily, or written to make the group sound big or full. And good rep is not always safe, so choose wisely. In his book, The Winds of Change, Frank Battisti states that directors are to blame for a growing repertoire that lacks artistic merit. Publishers will continue to release badly written music if directors keep buying it. He says that music is like wine. Everyone should appreciate and enjoy the finest of wines, but instead, we usually drink bad wine. The more bad wine you drink, the more you become desensitized to its lack of depth and quality. You start to think that bad wine is good, but that doesn't mean it actually is good. The same is true of concert music. There are many pieces that make the band sound full or good, but lack artistic quality and deep meaning. The more students play these kinds of pieces, the more they begin to think that these are pieces of merit. So choose wisely, because your job is to give them pieces that are full of artistic merit. The quest for great repertoire is hard, but your kids are worth it. Start digging and choose wisely.
1: There is so much love on this podcast today, and there's about to be a whole lot more. When I think of a
2: music power couple,
1: you know who immediately comes to mind?
2: Beyonce and Jay-Z.
3: John Lennon and Yoko Ono.
1: No, no, no. Donnie and Marie.
3: Ooh, ooh, what about Granger and his mom?
1: Okay, so, no, none of those, ever. Especially the last one, Daniel, just, no. And Steven, Donnie and Marie are brother and sister. That's kind of disgusting. I was thinking more local. I was thinking of the doctors Peterson. Daniel, you got to interview them about falling in love. How did that go?
3: A little awkward for me, since I am new here and barely know them. So I started by asking them how they met.
6: I was a graduate student at Northwestern University uh, in music education and trumpet performance. It was not a scandal. I was 26 years old.
4: Total scandal.
6: But uh, I was assigned to be a TA with the marching band. And... um, The interesting thing, I think, is that the summer before I had gone to the band building to get all my, like, history review books and notes,
7: I am, and I
6: went up to um, John Painter, who was the director of bands at that time, and I said, hi, I'm Beth Bowman, and I'm going to be working with the band, and I hear I'm going to be working with Steve Peterson, and um, John Painter said, well, he just left for lunch, and he's a big, tall, skinny, single guy, and he looked at me like I should, you know, care. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I, um, I took the brochure for the bands and I looked at him and I thought well he's kind of cute and then I went and I traveled Europe for the summer and I thought I'm going to marry that guy and then I came to be the assistant with the marching band and I met him and um, I thought I'm going to marry that guy <laughs> So, um, but he wouldn't look at me or he wouldn't talk to me he wouldn't pay any attention to me when we were charting for marching band or meeting with the students and I thought well he's totally not interested so why don't you take it from there
7: Well, our first date was set up. I'm not sure the first date was set this week. The way we were officially set up was the marching band Northwestern had a dating game, (coughs) and every, every Monday at rehearsal, they would pair up two of the most unlikely people, I mean, really unlikely people, and they would make up these silly biographies about them, and they'd read them out to the whole band, and then they'd give their phone number, and then they'd read out the other one, give their phone number, and if no one called either of those people that week, then they had to go out with each other. And so we became part of the...
6: Well, he was the director. No one was going to call and ask him right. out. He, we and became, I was a grad student, well, so they probably shouldn't have asked it was me set up. out. Yeah. We were
7: told right. not to call you. Otherwise, honey, you would have had you know, 100. Oh, calls.
6: sure. All undergrads. But, been weird.
7: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that you know, the, the marching band takes credit for us being set up. And indeed, they officially set us up. It was our first date um, when we went to Ann Arbor.
6: Nah, that wasn't really, that a, was date.
7: really a date. was a date. It kind oh. of was. It was a Mexican date. And I don't remember our first official date after that. We went to lunch well, I
6: first. asked him to lunch at a restaurant in Evanston, and we walked in, and there was a, one of my music ed professors there, so that and a colleague of his, so that felt really weird, who's now a really good friend. and We joke every time we see him that he was there on our first date. But our first official date was in November when we went to this really weird restaurant out by O'Hare. Remember that?
7: Oh, I do. Italian cave
6: cave. restaurants,
3: I don't know. The Petersons have always had a great relationship with John Painter. He was a teacher to both of them and eventually became Dr. Mr. Peterson's colleague. There was a great story about when John Painter found out about their relationship, which had been kept fairly quiet.
7: This was my second year, right, my second year at Northwestern, and I knew John quite well, but it held him in very high esteem and was still a little bit afraid of him, I would imagine, at some level. And he was the president of the Midwest Board, so he had this incredible suite at the top of the Hilton. And the word had got out that we were dating, apparently. He called me up there, and he, we sat at the table longer than this. He said, sit down. So I sat down, and he uh, said, well, I hear you're dating a student. And I just, all the blood rushed out of my myself, because I... <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, it's true. But what, how am I going to how am I going to explain this away? And and then a million things went through my mind because by this point we I actually kind of knew that that she was the one. And so uh, I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to lose my job? And if so, is it worth is she worth it? <laughs> <laughs> he lectured me for about a half an hour about uh, how one cannot date a student and what are we going to do about this? Isn't he going to have to let me go and everything? And at the end he finally says, Who who is it? And I said, It's Beth Bowman And he stood up from his end of the table, walked down toward me, still glaring at me, and in only the way John Painter could looked at me right in the eyes. He was probably five inches from my face at that point and said, Well, it's about time. And it meanwhile we found on. out his wife Marietta, a dear friend of ours, was in the other room listening the whole time and said, Hey, Marietta, it's Beth and she came running in and there were hugs all around and It was the best Christmas present I ever got. It was an okay from my mentor.
3: After weathering the painter inquisition, Steve asked Beth to marry him. Their wedding happened during December, and as Steve said...
7: From what I remember, it was a pretty good
6: bachelor party.
3: ...because they chose a time at which all their friends were in town. Their wedding had a bit of a spectacle to it, too, which was a surprise to the couple.
6: Hmm. 27 years ago, on December 22nd, we decided to get married the Saturday... After Midwest, because so many of our friends are band directors and we're in town already for the Midwest Conference in Chicago, um, much to the chagrin, I think, of our families, who uh, especially his, who had to come all the way from Arizona for the wedding, and it was really cold that oh. day, snowing, um, you know, wind chill of eight below zero, um, but it was beautiful. It was Christmas wedding, and I think the, the best band part about it was that it uh, came time to cut the cake. And all of a sudden, in the distance, I could hear a fight song being played by a marching band. And it were, there were members of the Northwestern marching band. You know, he was still conducting it. They came marching in, playing the, the Northwestern fight song, and we cut the cake to them playing. I think they played the Michigan fight song, too, with a like a raspberry stinger on the end of it, yeah, like a yeah. cluster chord at the end of the Michigan fight song. Yeah, but they played that be. for me, too.
3: For their entire marriage, they have worked as band directors. As we all know, the life of a band director is really busy. I asked them how they worked out their busy schedules and raised a family.
7: That's a good question. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'll tell you, it's fine. <laughs> and my wife, who maybe, arguably, had a little more to do with the children, I might say otherwise, but. Uh, I mean, there's good, both good and bad about that because we understood what each other's strains were going to be in terms of time our time and all that kind of things. And we just communicated well and were able to kind of work around each other's schedules for the most part. It, it worked out great. The kids were always around the band.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think for, for us, you mentioned it, but we're both supportive of each other and um, I'm pretty organized at home, so I would sort of give the marching orders of who was going to do what each week, but he was very helpful as long as I told him what to do. He picked the children Up at the right time. Usually, if I couldn't do it, and um, I had to go get my doctorate during the summers, so he stayed home when the kids were really little for two, almost three summers. Yes, I Three long summers (laughs) by myself. For six weeks, going to school with
7: two toddlers.
6: Well, no one was like she was six. Eight days a
7: week, twenty-six hours a day.
6: They all survived and did well.
3: Shortly after they moved to Ithaca, they became colleagues on top of husband and wife. This holds true at the University of Illinois their offices are a lot closer now. But surprisingly, they could find few obstacles to having a professional relationship.
7: That's a good question, but I'm happy to say obstacles. I...
6: No, and I think what's, like, sometimes I have to remind myself that we're odd, that most couples don't work together and, and haven't worked, you know, and we've worked together for 20 years now, almost. And and so it's, it's weird for me to think that most couples go to two separate jobs and they'll only see each other at the end of the day. And
7: There's no obstacle. It's just, it's better because if there's a problem, if I'm if I'm having something that's really bugging me, I can just tell her what it is, and she's really smart. And she said, "Why don't you just do this?" That person is such and such and such. So don't worry about or whatever. You know, it's like
3: each day, those who work or play in Illinois bands have the opportunity to work with these two directors. We experience their loving relationship, and their married life is often displayed.
6: Gotcha. Stop yawning.
3: Beyond just their love of each other, their love of music, their friends, and their students is always present.
0: There was a time where, you know, you could look around and you wouldn't be able to see anyone that was like you. And so you sort of felt like you had to become something different or just hide who you were in order to be accepted in the, in the community of professionals. I had the opportunity
1: to sit down with Dr. John Lynch, who is the conductor of the Wind Symphony at the Sydney Conservatorium in Australia. He has previously taught in the States, at the University of Georgia, Kansas, and Northwestern, among others. Dr. Lynch's story is slightly different from the others today, as he will be discussing being part of the LGBTQ community
0: as a band director. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. This is John Lynch uh, from Sydney, Australia, saying hi to everybody. Hope everyone's having a great day. Yeah, so my journey as a band director has been just slightly different from some in that um, I'm an out-gay person um, in the community and have been for many years. And uh, But it was definitely a journey to get to a place where I'm as comfortable as I am today. And uh, just a little bit about my background. I grew up in a really small town in upstate New York. Grew up in the country and uh, had a really great experience there. But... Definitely, the coming out process was something that's been a lifelong journey. It doesn't happen. It's not like a magical moment. It's something that that takes time, and it's it's mostly, I will say, a, a situation where you're coming out to yourself, where you're becoming comfortable in your own skin, and uh, just accepting who you are, and and embracing it, and just integrating it into your life in a healthy way. Um, I might be one of the first uh, directors of bands at a large institution uh, to be an, an out LGBTQ person in the profession. And my hope is that uh, my journey, my story will help uh, make others confident that have been in similar situations or that are uh, dealing with doubts about it. And uh, it has been, a everyone knows that traditionally the band world has been traditionally a place for, you know, straight male leadership figures. And that's great, but there's so much room, more room in our profession for leaders that uh, come from all walks of life. From And I think exciting things are happening on that front. And I will say professionally that I've had a really almost 100% uh, very, very positive experiences on this journey. I've had fantastically supportive colleagues and bosses and uh, students that pretty much have not had any issue with uh, my sexuality and that sort of thing. And uh, it certainly doesn't come up in the workplace, but it is who, part of who I am.
1: Many people do not realize that coming out in this profession can take time, and you want to feel accepted by all of your peers. Dr. Lynch tells his story of how he gradually came out over time.
0: I think my first big high school uh, position was at Monroe Woodbury High School in New York State. I was out to my colleague's and uh, my bosses but not the students and the parents so sort of like a testing of the waters and it was a very kind of progressive community of educators so it was, it was not a problem at all and so that gave me some confidence and then when I went to my first uh, university teaching position it was at Emory University in Atlanta which is a really really great community and open place for gay people uh, to thrive And so I was out more at that point to my colleagues and my students. I took my partner on uh, trips that we took and he came to all the concerts and was very, very made to feel really, really welcome. And then from there, I moved to uh, Chicago Northwestern University, which is, of course, a terrifically open and welcoming environment. So that was also a really great affirming experience. And uh, fast forwarding to where I am now in Sydney, Australia, Australia, just as a a society in general, is extremely open and accepting of gay people. Although, ironically, we just legalized gay marriage here um, several years after the U.S. did, which was much to the consternation of most of my friends and colleagues here.
1: Whether it be fear of retribution from parents, staff, or students, or discomfort with their own sexuality, or myriad other reasons, many band directors who are gay or in the LGBTQ community choose to keep that side of their life secret. This can cause many difficulties when trying to connect with their students because these teachers are not revealing who they are fully.
0: There are very many moments where it's a little uncomfortable, like you don't feel like you can be your total self with your students, which uh, I think creates a bit of a barrier. But I I would definitely say it was not anything having to do with them. It was more having to do with my internalized homophobia. Just like I said, it's a lifelong process dealing with, with coming to grips with who you are and accepting who you are. And it was just a lack of comfort in my own skin at that point. But looking back, I wish that I had been a better role model and more open to my students and just more authentically who I was at the time. But, and, and the world's changed. I think right now there's so many more positive gay role models on television and just in all walks of life and, and finally professional sports, things like that, that people that are growing up these days that are dealing with coming out, it's much, much easier
1: Times have changed, and we have become more progressive as a society. But when Dr. Lynch came out to the profession, he did not have many role models.
0: I think there were not a lot of out gay band directors at any level uh, for a long, long time. It's, it's all really changed. now. I'll, I'll just cite this interesting story that back in the 90s, a couple friends and I um, started a sort of social networking group at the Midwest Clinic of gay band directors which has now grown exponentially we get together every year in chicago and it's now grown to include uh, friends and allies and just a really great uh, group of uh, camaraderie and support system and it's absolutely cool with everybody nobody cares anymore but there was a time where you know you could look around and you wouldn't be able to see anyone that was like you and so you sort of felt like you had to become something different or just hide who you were in order to be accepted in the in the community of professionals. But again, I think a lot of that was internalized.
1: And while we have progressed quite a bit as a society and a profession, there have been times when Dr. Lynch has found that he has been discriminated against for his
0: sexual orientation. There were actually not many, but just a few instances that, you know, of course, linger with you for a long time, because they have a really powerful impact <clears throat> in a negative way that, yeah, there were some instances where things happened to me that were quite distressing and certainly weren't helpful in the process. It kind of drove you backward in a way or made you sit back and say, wow, it's not as cool as I thought it was. There was an instance where just was a story was relayed by a friend who had to stick up for me in a, in a group of, you know, senior members of the profession that were just making derogatory comments about my sexuality, which has no bearing on my work. And so they relayed that to me and I was appreciative of, you know, them stepping up and, you know, that kind of shut the conversation down. But to have to hear about that, it's like, wow, you know, we've come so far, but yet this still exists. And then another situation where I thought I was definitely treated differently by someone higher up on the food chain of uh, administration. You know, I knew for a fact that I was treated differently. And uh, also was, my uh, partner was treated rudely by the same person. And there's nothing you know, I wish I had done more at the time, I wish I'd have spoken up and taken a stronger stance, but I was like, you know, just have to to get on with it. Few and far between, though, I will say overwhelmingly, my friends, colleagues, everybody that I've worked with, my students have been just amazingly supportive and just you know, it's really a non issue.
1: The band world is trying to take a more active role in diversity. One needs only to look at the CBDNA conferences and Midwest clinic programs to see that many band directors are embracing these issues and trying to resolve them in a fruitful way. All issues of diversity are important. No one should be left out of our profession. But lately, the profession has focused on minorities and, and females as the focus of our diversity issues. Rarely are we discussing the issues of sexual orientation.
0: When we're talking about diversity in, in the band director and composer worlds, I don't hear people talking about that type of minority, sexual minority, and then maybe it does need to be added to the list. I mean, ultimately, obviously, we want to come to a point where that your gender and your race don't matter. It's the quality of the work and what you bring to the table. But I think we're still at a point where we have to talk about these things. We have to You know, to shine a light on the fact that there are so few women composers that are getting programmed these days. And, you know, it's definitely improving in terms of uh, female conductors and conductors of color and diversity. And so, yeah, it's starting to happen. But the awareness comes, I think, from us having to use those titles initially just to uh, shine a light on the dark corners. You know, it's been dominated by white males. For so long, that we need to balance the scales a little bit and at least prop up and and shine the light on really talented people that um, have another kind of story to tell. I'm always thinking about young people coming into the profession or considering it as a possible career path. If for an instant that person hesitates because of their orientation, because they don't see anyone like them, or it's not part of the discussion, or they don't feel like it's a welcoming profession, there's a problem. And I think the, the institutions can really help in the teacher training and music education programs and in college band rooms that, you know, we can talk about these things openly. We don't have to shy away from sexuality because it's uncomfortable or taboo. Like, it can be part of the discussion because I think any teacher has to realize within their classroom that they're going to have that whole spectrum of people there and they might have some kids that are going through some really troubling times coming to grips with their coming-out process.
1: Even with all the progress we have made, some in the LGBTQ community may still feel marginalized. So I asked Dr. Lynch what advice he would give them.
0: Just do fantastic work. Just work really hard, be dedicated to your work, and be authentic, and your work will speak for itself. And then in a way, you will become a role model for others and that you're not letting your sexuality define you, but you're also not shying away from it and hiding it. It's part of who you are, being free to talk about, you know, if you have a partner, talk about that. And just as someone would talk about their boyfriend or girlfriend or their wife or husband, just don't hide that part of who you are. Just be who you are, be open, because you're going to touch somebody that has never known or been a friend of a gay person before, and that will open their mind and their heart
1: I then followed up by asking him what allies to the LGBTQ community could do to make our profession more inviting.
0: I have found overwhelmingly my straight allies and colleagues have been really the very best because they can come from the position of the majority and say, yeah, we value you for who you are, and it's not—it's a non-issue for us. So maybe just reaching out—if you see someone that's that's maybe struggling with it or being um, reticent to make comments as to their personal life—just say something affirming, like that, that you have other friends that are gay, or you know, just make a supportive comment here and there, which will open the door to a dialogue. And I think for me, if more people had done that and not been afraid to, in other words, just to kind of dance around the topic and not mention it, it would have been really helpful if someone had just said, hey, you know, it's cool, can we talk about it? For the majority to reach out to the minority and say, hey, you know, we value you, you're part of us. Extremely powerful.
1: When it comes to helping students in this community, the most important thing is to make them feel safe and supported. I asked Dr. Lynch what we can do as directors to help these
0: students. Well, I think as Band Directors, we are definitely leaders within our communities. We've got that power and that responsibility, and along with respons- responsibility comes uh, sometimes having to do things that are uncomfortable and taking courageous steps. So you know, you might have to speak up if you hear some, uh, a comment that's made that's homophobic or less than um, understanding. And yeah, the more that that happens, the better it's going to be for everybody. And it's just opening minds and, and getting people comfortable with the idea and that it's not something that's threatening. I mean, these are people just trying to lead, lead their lives. And, yeah, I think just being courageous like being bold to speak out. When you hear something that you that, that does not sit right with you or agree with you, engage in thoughtful dialogue and, and maybe bring up an alternate viewpoint. But to sit silent, um, that can't happen anymore, in my opinion.
1: As we closed our conversation, I asked Dr. Lynch for any final words.
0: Um, I would never have dreamt I would be having this discussion when I was in my 20s or
3: even 30s, so yay! A quick update about Illinois bands for this month. On February 25th, the Illinois Wind Symphony and Wind Orchestra will present a joint concert. Both will feature the music of Dana Wilson. On March 7th, the Heinzley Symphonic Band, University Band, and Campus Band will present a concert. This is a terrific opportunity to see the non-majors who participate in our program play. Two new ensembles will give a concert on March 14th. The Brass Band and the Clarinet Choir will perform at McKinley Memorial Presbyterian Church. The Brass Band program is called Zootopia, as each piece is based on animals. And the Clarinet Choir's portion is in memoriam of Harvey Herman. They will be playing his arrangements of music for clarinets.
2: On the 15th of March, the Marching Illini will fly out of the country to attend the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin, Ireland. You will hear all about this trip in a later episode. Speaking of marching band, let's return with our last story of love, which takes place during the football game. You may be aware of the couple whose story is going to be told. The video of their engagements went viral a few months ago because he proposed during a game at the University of Iowa. It was even sweetened by the circumstances, which they will highlight for us. One more time, producer Mary Allison Mahachuk talked to Grace Shebler and Isaac Anderson about their surprise engagement and their life growing up together.
8: I just wanted to know like, how you guys met. Yeah, so we uh, went to high
9: school together back in Davenport. And I was a freshman and he was a junior and he was my very first drum major. Um, we both played trombone too in concert band.
10: Oh, we like worked on like uh, all state stuff together from
8: how did you come up with the idea for the engagement, Isaac? Like, what, did you always know you wanted to do that, or did you just like happen to be in town? Or how did that how did that happen?
10: Well, I mean, that was kind of weird. Um, so it, it all kind of started actually the day that I left, uh, the, uh, because I, I had to leave halfway through the season, uh, and, and college marching band kind of did something on that too. Um, before I left, it was around the Penn State game, which was like the fourth game of the season. So it was late September um and the athletic director um our associate athletic director is actually a former drum major of the hockey marching band um so i know him and i told him that i wanted to do this before the end of the season and I, i wanted to come back for one of the games and surprise her um and then it kind of became a kind of guessing game because once i got down here um i'm you know in training um maybe not like traditionally like basic training like people would think um i'm an officer training so i I have a little bit more freedom but in terms of our training cycle i wasn't exactly sure what it would be yet so i kind of like had talked to people like her sister and friends and then people back in the band about you know like kind of three games i picked and then it was just a matter of when i got a pass approved so i actually didn't find out about uh, whether or not i could come to the game probably until three or four days beforehand and luckily i it was really easy after that though because i I still knew people in the band
8: oh that's awesome yeah it looked like it worked out really well for you grace did you have any idea that it was going to happen or no you didn't know
9: i had no clue clue. he had convinced me that he was still in georgia he made up the story to make it seem like he was still there but in reality he had flown home the night before All my friends knew about it. My sister took me to get my nails done the week before, which should have been a giveaway, but I was a little oblivious to it. But I'm glad I was. I had no clue.
8: Yeah, it makes it more fun that way, I'm sure, for you to be just totally surprised. And I'm, I'm sure it was hard for all of your friends to keep quiet about it, too, if everybody else knew, you know?
9: Yeah, I'm really glad that people kept it a secret. They did a really good job.
8: Did you ever find that since you played the same instrument and you guys were in band together so long, um, that you ever, like, got into competition with or, with each other or there was ever kind of, like, a time where you were, like, you both wanted the same spot and it caused an issue or something like oh, that? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs>
10: that, uh, that did happen. Um, well, in, in college, Grace took a bass trombone, so we, we weren't in direct competition until I went in college. Um, but there was, there was a time in... Uh, in high school that uh, it was around marching band time and I was, I was pretty tied down with with drum major things and I, I didn't prepare well enough and uh, she she beat me out in a chair failure
9: He was better than me. He should have been ahead of me, but I got that one and he was not happy <laughs> to have each other to kind of compete with and we can we can practice with each other too, but we also, you know, are able to give each other critiques as well. You know, it's not just all like, oh, you sound great.
10: It makes it easier to find material since she's a bass and I'm better.
1: Just like last episode where we highlighted another music podcast, this episode we are bringing you a different one. This one is run by Andrew Hitz and his podcast is called The Entrepreneurial Musician. And we would like to welcome Andrew. And first thing we would like to do is have him give us a quick background on himself.
11: I graduated from Northwestern University back in 1997, where one of my three band directors was uh, someone by the name of Steve Peterson, who is probably familiar with your listeners. Uh, from there, I was Sam Palafian's graduate teaching assistant at Arizona State. And I then joined the Boston Brass, which I toured the world with many times over for 14 years. I got to play in almost four. 40 countries and almost all 50 states, and uh, I now teach at uh, Shenandoah University. And I host a couple of podcasts, and I've written a couple of books in the Band Directors Guide series, and um, and I do music business consulting.
1: Awesome! And then, could you tell us about your podcast, what the focus is, and where we can get it?
11: The Entrepreneurial Musician, or TEM, as I will call it from here on out because it's too many syllables, is a weekly podcast that features conversations with music business leaders, some of the the best entrepreneurs in the music business today uh, across a bunch of different disciplines. It also features episodes called Book Reports, where I will read a business book and I will then break down the highlights and give examples of how specifically the concepts of that book apply to musicians in the music business and you can find it uh, anywhere that you would download podcasts so you can find it on itunes on stitcher or on your favorite podcast app
1: and for any new listeners could you give them a hook episode to really get them interested and one that you think is really 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 important The episode that I would probably
11: recommend is episode 77, which features David Cutler, who is a dear friend of mine who teaches entrepreneurship at the University of South Carolina. And uh, this episode, this was part one of the Savvy Musicians 10 Tips for 2017. And uh, David offered up 10 really fantastic, actionable, and thought provoking ideas for how anyone can succeed in today's music business
1: good I hope everyone will go listen to that one but I first discovered uh, your podcast by listening to the episode on building your own website and this is maybe a bit of a stigma in the conducting world about creating your own um, but I know we tend not to do it as conductors what would you tell a conductor uh, who's maybe thinking about doing it or those conductors who don't have a website why is it really important for them to do this
11: I would say, and we've all done that before with various things, I know I certainly have, but I would say that that is a form of hiding and that it's easier to just make fun of everyone who has a website because of a few that are done really poorly and are just a, hey, look at me, hey, enough about you, let's talk about me some more, and instead view it as your digital storefront. It is imperative that you own your own store if you will and store is an analogy not literally you don't necessarily need to be literally selling anything but i don't care how many people like your facebook page i don't care how many friends you have on facebook you do not own that that is all owned by facebook and there are stories you can google it of people getting an email from from facebook saying you violated the terms of service and goodbye And you cannot call 1-800-FACEBOOK to get any of that reinstated. And so you don't want to put all of your eggs into one basket when that basket is owned and controlled by someone else. So just view it as a way for the world when they want to come and find out more about you. Keep in mind, anyone visiting your website is asking more about Sean. And so that gives them the opportunity to find out what you're about and
1: to see what you have to offer. I would like to thank Andrew for coming on to one more time and talking a bit about his podcast. We will be offering his favorite episode as our mini band coming up at the end of the month. So if you're listening one more time, make sure you watch for our mini band so that you can listen to Andrew's favorite episode, episode 77
11: i gotta keep this tight here so yeah when i was looking up when i got your email i was like okay yeah the last one had four guests and it was 37 minutes long i was like yeah that's like i think
2: i've had 37 minute answers before so i was
11: like, that's I was like.
2: you are going to love our source material segment today there are few wind composers as beloved by the band world as frank to kelly he is nearly universally renowned and there are very few people who have not experienced his works through conducting playing or listening he sat down with us at the Midwest Clinic to discuss Blue Shades, which is a piece that I even played uh, back in my concert band days in high school.
12: Blue Shades was commissioned by a consortium of 30 wind ensembles and concert bands from all over the country and ranging from some of the top groups all the way down to some very inexperienced young groups. So it was a tricky challenge for me to have this commission. How do you write a piece that's going to be within the abilities of these less experienced groups and yet not bore the uh, more experienced groups? That was tricky. So my solution was to leave that those inexperienced groups in the dust, which is what it did, but at least give them something that would allow them to have fun trying to do the piece, and that's where the jazz uh, decisions came from, uh, so that they would have fun with the jazz elements and so forth. I know they'd have a difficult time playing, but at least they'd have fun with it, and it'll also meet the expectations of the more experienced groups. Another reason for the jazz influences is just my own roots. I grew up in New Orleans, and my first real musical experiences were that New Orleans jazz. My dad used to take me to those clubs to hear uh, traditional jazz that was played in the French Quarter. And I was very young, age nine, age eight. In Louisiana, they let you go into bars at that age if you're with your parents. So I would go in and hear these groups. And I always wanted to write a piece that celebrated those roots and yet still allowed room for my own personal voice to come through. I had done a piece called Playing With Fire before Blue Shades, but that was all New Orleans jazz. There was very little room for my own voice. So I wanted to revisit you know, that traditional jazz in a way that would allow my own voice to come through. After the introduction of the piece, which is just sort of establishing the minor third interval, the main theme doesn't occur until about, I'd say, about the one minute mark. The main theme, ba ba da ba da ba da, ba do ba do ba da, ba do da 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 ba da 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 that was the first thing, actually, that I composed, even though it doesn't occur until one minute into the piece. And I had real trouble. I was actually trying to make it work, and I was running that walking bass that occurs during the clarinet solo. Bum, 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 I was trying to have that theme along with the main theme, and it wasn't working. And the solution, which didn't come until many months later, actually several months later, I figured out, just use my eraser. Don't have the walking base all the time. Just part of it. So it ended up just being rest, bum, 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 just that much. So there's all these little air holes in that walking base that allow other events to come through, like little windows that it that it opened. Then the piece just sort of wrote itself very quickly. But it took a long time for me to figure out that I was doing too much with that walking base. So that was that was sort of how the main thing finally came about. And then later when the clarinet solo occurs, bump, 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 I run that walking bass. That's the first time that I actually run the entire walking bass is doing the stand-up clarinet solo. And the stand-up clarinet solo was composed literally with my trumpet in my hand. I actually improvised it on my trumpet. And I thought, okay, if I can do this on trumpet, the clarinet player should be able to do this on clarinet. And so, and uh, so that's sort of two main sections in the piece. That was the order. That I had the piece, the main theme, and then skipping way to the end, the uh clarinet, the standard clarinet And then after that, I can't remember how the piece, how I composed, it was completely composed out of order. I believe the next theme was that sort of quasi-minimalist section that occurs with this sort of pop, 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 pop. So the whole piece came in pieces like that, that gradually those pieces sort of stitched themselves together. Pieces themselves grew until they sort of grew into each other and the piece sort of stitched itself together. That's often the way I compose, completely out of order and almost never starting at the beginning and no idea what the form is. And then the form gradually starts to reveal itself through the material itself, through the content. So in a way, the piece is telling me This is what I need to be. This is where I need to go. I've got some idea over here on the side that I'm trying to fit into the piece and it's not going to work. Like a jigsaw puzzle piece that you're trying to force in. That starts to happen. I'm trying to force something and then I realize, oh, you're forcing this, Frank. You can't do this. The piece is telling me all of that. It's telling me no and yes. The energy is very circular is what I'm saying. I'm giving input and then the piece is coming back and giving me kind of a responsorial input. Some of the biggest mistakes conductors make are ignoring the uh, articulations, especially the sforzando-like things and the accents and so forth. Like where that main theme happens, ba. <notation again> There's a horn lick right there, and then ba. <atra confusion> then the other horn, ba. It's a D on the. It's a D concert, I believe, on the horn right there, written A. I don't know why it's written right there with an accent and a forte piano, and. Almost nobody plays it. You have to do those things. Another thing is the speed. Conductors that that I hear, like, I can't tell you how many, I'd say at least 70% of the performances are too slow. And when you go too slowly, you fail to um, allow the energy to sort of be there, the life force to be there. It's not blue shades if you go too slowly. The walking bass often uh, without the contrabass clarinet you are missing that lower octave and so now without that you're losing some of that bottom the foundation that you need so you really need to have a contrabass if you don't have a contrabass i encourage conductors to cue it off in other players or get a double a string bass somebody to play that part because it's really important we're going to bring out a 25th anniversary edition of the piece where i've actually now included a string bass part because it works so well well, the 25th anniversary edition, is going to have a ton of things that Frank DeKelly, the conductor, has suggested to Frank De Kelly, the composer. I'd say at least a hundred things will be different in the 25th anniversary edition. At least 100. I think one other thing that would help when you're, if you're conducting Blue Shades, is to memorize the score, or at least come as close as possible to memorizing, so that you are able to be to look around the room as the music is moving around the room. One thing about Blue Shades is that the music of Blue Shades is constantly moving around the room. It's never sort of sitting in one place. It's over here now with the clarinets. Now it's over here with the horns. And then for one beat, right there with the trumpets. And now it's to the percussion. It's moving constantly. And I find that conductors who are able to move around the room with their eyes more, they are literally teaching the players and the audience, by the way, the piece. Because they're teaching sort of the structure of the piece by moving themselves around the room. And those conductors who are buried in the score, or they're conducting looking up over every now and then, they're losing that opportunity to bring that side of the piece to life. There is actually an orchestral version of the piece that I wrote for the Pacific Symphony, and I really love that version. I still like the concert band version better, but I really love that orchestral version as well. I urge conductors to go listen to that performance just to hear that side of it.
2: Today's rehearsal peak is of the Uva University Band. This band is made up of primarily non majors or music majors on their secondary instruments. They rehearse once a week and are directed by graduate students Will Sugg and Patricia Venegas. This clip is a bit of Will Sugg rehearsing the group on John Mackey's This Cruel Moon. This is an arrangement of the beautiful second movement of his symphony. Mackey's movement is about the unrequited love between the nymph Calypso and Odysseus. consider following us on itunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show if you want to stay current with illinois bands between episodes follow us on facebook or join us on instagram at illinois underscore bands find us on twitter at illinois bands and of course watch us on snapchat at illinois underscore bands you can always check out our website for more information www.bands.illinois.edu the executive producer and host of today's show is sean smith and the staff of the podcast includes co-host and occasional producer, Daniel Dresser, co-host and producer, Stephen Cohn, Christian Arkin, and Mary Allison Mehechik, who is also our script supervisor. The mixing of this episode and recording of segments is done by Sam Litz and Zia Fox. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty, Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser. Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts.
1: Thanks for listening and join us next month where we will have a episode titled The Glass Ceiling and it will feature all women band directors. Thanks for listening to
0: One More Time. time.